Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, one of the last remaining redoubts of the old London, resolutely and obstinately broadcasting from amid the metastasizing luxury apartments and glass spires of finance capital. I'm James Butler and joining me in the studio this week is China Mieval, a, novel who, a novelist whose work will likely be familiar to many of our listeners and now the author of an extraordinary narrative history of the revolution of 1917, October. That book is where our focus will be today, but there's also a political dimension to all of the novels, I think, sometimes latent, sometimes pronounced from the explicit concerns of Iron Council through to the astonishing exploration of the politics of language in Embassy Town, the immiscible and yet inextricably interdependent experiences of the border in the city and the city, as well as an enduring concern about the urban, about the nature of cities, a theme which runs throughout one of my favourite of the novels, uh, the loving take on the occult pot boiler Kraken uh, as well as all of that uh, those who have followed your career know that you are a committed socialist and I think we might talk about commitment and what that means today and you're also part of the editorial team collective uh, crew at Salvage welcome to the show thank you so much for having me a hundred years a hundred years after the revolution, and in a sense, it's obvious in a very banal sense, um, why one would write a book for the centenary. But it's not obvious that one would do so in such a manner as you have. And at many points during the past hundred years, it's been easy to talk of 1917 as an epochal event, uh, a bursting forth onto the historical plane of a new thing, which alters forever the story of humanity thereafter. So conflicts about its meanings, about its origins, its replicability, its inevitability, its ownership rose and fell. And these were meaningful conflicts because what we said about the revolution said a lot about what we thought the world was or could be. And now the world defined by it is no more. And for many among the latest wave of historical researchers, the revolution itself disappears under their microscope. It disarticulates into... Mere happenstance, luck, more myth than truth. And it would be easy to write the blustering socialist defence of the revolution full of bad faith and bad hope. And that book has been written many times. Uh, instead, you chose to write the story of a revolutionary period from February to October, month by month. And its protagonists shift and change, the expected Bolsheviks, but also the soldiers at the front, the many sympathetic left Mensheviks and social revolutionaries, the provincial Soviets, the streets which explode away from the kind of worried meeting chamber of the provisional government or the Soviet or, you know, whatever. Why this month-by-month -month structure and what is the story of the revolution? Uh, well, I'll duck the second question for the moment. <laughs> um, I mean, the... the, the 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 initial idea um, was actually quite prosaic, which was uh, without in any way wanting to sort of duck or disavow the obvious political questions and indeed commitment and so on. Um, I and my editor, Sebastian Budgeon, we were sort of talking two or three years ago and obviously the centenary was coming up and, and we thought that, you know, it would be really useful and interesting, hopefully, to have precisely unapologetically a kind of narrative history a popular narrative history for the i think quite a lot of people who are interested know that this was a really big thing but literally just don't know what happened when so there so there was um there was very much a sense of trying to kind of prioritize that storytelling aspect um you know we kind of uh, using the fact that i'm 
better known for fiction and, and trying to write it sort of unapologetically as a sort of as a narrative with that sense of almost novelistic rhythm and acceleration and so on and so forth. So that on one level, it's just, you know, if uh, particularly if you're relatively new to the topic, uh, you know, and you just want to know what happened when in this extraordinary year, this idea is that the book, the idea is that the book will will give you a good rigorous, you know, researched but non-specialist introduction. And then obviously with, within that, there are, um, you know, sort of discussions of the politics. And particularly at the end, there's a kind of, there's a certain kind of uh, looking back and a certain kind of elegiac um, approach, I suppose. But um, the reason for kind of doing it as a kind of month by month, chapter by chapter thing was kind of emerged quite early on which was the the increasing rhythm of the events, you know. Mm. Um, it sort of presented itself um, and, and that, that sense of wanting to, to kind of uh, submerge the reader into that kind of tide of acceleration. One of the things that was interesting is when, when I was planning it, when we were planning it, we thought we would be jostling in a really crowded marketplace. We thought politics aside, irrespective of where you stand on the revolution, simply in terms of the importance of this, as you say, as a big story, uh, centenary, we're going to be, you know, it's going to be crowded. And for all the genuinely interesting exhibitions and so on, in terms of introductory narrative histories, that has not been the case. And that's been a genuine surprise to me. And I think that's been replicated actually across media. I don't think, you know, there, there isn't, there hasn't been the sort of great television history mm. that you might expect. There hasn't yeah. been the kind of endless radio discussion that you, that you might think. And, and you know, and I think the reasons for that are, are worth exploring. And I think, it, you know, <laughs> it's quite a depressing thing, actually. Yeah. That people just, you know, regard it as, as, as the foundational event of a period of history that's over. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we're so, I was so thinking, you know, it swings and roundabouts, because obviously for me, on the one hand, <laughs> uh, less commercial pressure, you know, less competition for the book. On the downside, the triumph of a decades-long ideological project of reactionary forgetting. So you know, swings and roundabouts, really. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think so. I think the temptation, you know, the, the, there could be temptations here about, say, sort of, you know, the kind of post facto justification, or to say, you know, okay, so here are the bits of the revolution that that are yeah. important and that must remain, and you know, to extract from the, the from this story, uh, you know, a catechism, catechism yeah. of revolution. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't do that. And I think I think that's a good thing. Um, were there temptations here for you? Is it, you know, I mean, you know, were there things that were difficult to look in the face and, and were there surprises? Surprises, certainly. Um, in terms of difficult to look in the face, that's that's an interesting formulation. It, I suppose my... Uh, my thoughts would be that it was it was a question of kind of anguish because in for the most part you know if you have as as i do a, a solidarity with the revolution hopefully a non-dogmatic and not uncritical <laughs> solidarity but a solidarity a lot of these uh degenerations and mistakes and indeed crimes at, at certain points um one's aware of them one's one has a sense of them um but to kind of really start researching them and 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 you know really see where this happened where that happened was painful rather than something that I felt like, you know, I had to kind of overcome an internal resistance. Mm -hmm. Not least because one of the things that you find when you're researching it is that um, these were very contested at the time, including from within, you know, the Bolshevik party, the left SRs, their, their initially comrades, you know. So it's not as if there was this kind of, you know, ineluctable tide um, towards 
the catastrophe, um, and 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 it's certainly not. And I think at its worst, the left has sometimes done this. It's not as if to defend the revolution necessitates sort of um, ra- rather scurrying over those issues. You know, I mean, I think. You know, one can take a leaf from people like Victor Serge's book, who you know, Victor Serge, who absolutely refuses to do this, including at that moment. Yeah. And of course, that also means understanding the the extern without pitching it as you know, therefore it was no one's fault. But you know, p- you know, understanding the the constraints and the external circumstances mm-hmm. and so on. So painful, very much so. Yeah. Talk yeah. to me about the surprises. The surprises were, um, again. I sort of formally knew that, for example, within the Bolsheviks, uh, despite the sort of um, uh, the the smears, if you like, of history, that there was a lot of kind of internal debate and so on. But when you're actually really kind of working through the the literature, um, and I read a lot of the the you know as many of the histories as I could, the, the sheer amount of like jostling, irritation, argument, disagreement, people getting things wrong, including people like Lenin, mm-hmm. you know, for all the kind of post, uh, you know, uh, post facto hagiography and so on. That was, a, uh, you know, not a bolt from the blue, but the scale of it was 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 a real surprise. The um, Also, there were certain figures that I was surprised to find myself with what I can only describe as a kind of narrative affection for. So most obviously someone like Kerensky, whose politics were you know, uh, invidious and appalling and confused and so on and so forth, but who it's very difficult not to find yourself kind of wanting to him reappear on the story because he's just such an extraordinary mm-hmm. figure, you know. And then there were the the figures that I knew very little about, like Maria Spiridonova of the, of the left socialist revolutionaries, who one of the surprises was the extent to which I, you know, she, she ended up shining for me and I wanted to know more and I was really, you know, fascinated and so on. Um, so those were the things that kind of that kind of jumped out, mm-hmm. and the sense of farce at times. Mm-hmm. Not always, but <laughs> I mean, she really shines mm-hmm. out of, of the narrative here. I and mean, I was left wanting to know more about her, um, and because I think it's you know, I, and, and there is a sense, and we'll come on to talk about it about that halo of people around or close to the Bolsheviks who are not Bolsheviks, yeah. who are, you know, they are the, the in some in some senses throughout the narrative, they bear the possibility of an unrealized future, right? And yes. I, think, I think that's one of the themes that we can come on to. But in terms, I just wanted to, to, to pick, because you mentioned exhibitions and I, I was, um, and, and that question of kind of a, a, a long history of, uh, or a project of ideological forgetting, yeah. which I think is, is an apt way of putting it. And it, it really is possible to enter into kind of polemic with the enormous condescension of, of posterity. Yeah. This is a phrase that E.P. Thompson uses about the, the Luddites, but it's it's now increasingly actually yeah. used in, in this case, um, as if every participant in the revolution were a dupe of a, a, a few a few central uh, characters, or as if you know the, the notion of, of emancipation was not current or, or shared at all. Um, I, 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 and I was thinking this when I, I went to see the Royal Academy yeah. show, um, which collects together some extraordinary art, mm. um, and then curates it in you know an almost unbelievably offensive way. Uh, it says you know every artist was secretly doing something else. Mm. You know Tatlin is se- secretly a mystic, as is uh, you know as is Malevich, and they're, yeah. you know they're, they're just having to you know make their art fit in with with the revolution. Yeah, you know, they're never interested in the question of revolution itself. So I think there's a historical drift yeah. that's necessary to correct here. And it's also just worth saying on that topic that 
you know, a, a cursory look at the at the literature, at the letters, you know, uh, at the at the diaries, at the discussions, just shows that to be flatly false. Like you can you can disagree with with these people, you can argue about their politics and so on, but the idea that there was not this immense explosive fascination and drive towards precisely and self-articulately articulately the idea of revolution, the necessity mm. of revolution. One of the things that you see. For me, I think my favourite documents that I that I read were the were the letters, letters from the front, letters from the rural Soviets, letters from the villages, and so on. And repeatedly throughout the middle of the year, you have this yearning that, like, you know, we we had a revolution in February, but it hasn't worked. Something's not. It's the the you know, it isn't finished. Something mm -hmm. we need more. You know, I mean, it's um, it's it, as you say, it's not just a condescension. It's it to a certain extent, it's an insult because you're kind of you know these people knew precisely what it was they wanted in many of those cases. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think one of the things that, that struck me actually when, when reading the book was uh, uh, the figure of Lunacharsky, particularly mm. at, at the beginning of the book. This is a guy who, who is fascinating to me, and he's very, very eccentric, mm. actually. And one of the things I think that comes out of, of the book is actually how thick the revolution is with ideas yeah. and visions of... Uh, the way in which the world could be different. And I mean, yeah. actually, Lunacharsky, relatively conventional tastes artistically, mm -hmm, goes mm -hmm. on to think some very strange things and gets sort of all sorts of uh, 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 unfortunate things happen to him. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it really struck me that there is, there is one of the things that's made possible by, at the beginning of the book, by, by, by the February Revolution, is, is simply that, that, uh, potentiality is made possible. Totally. And and this, uh, you know, this explosive kind of, I mean, we use the phrase carnival and carnivalesque, but for a mm -hmm. reason, there were literally carnivals, <laughs> you know, um, and these kind of, um, this, uh, this amazing efflorescence of, of again, very, uh, very um, explicitly a sense of uh, total potentiality and so on. And one of these very interesting kind of reconfigurings of, of allegiances around a lot of these axes, these these axes of potentiality. So Lunacharsky and Lenin, for example, who'd had a very fractious relationship for many years, you know, finding themselves, you know, abruptly on the same side in terms of this this driving towards uh, this explosion of of, of alterity, um, and and just to repeat in various different modes, including the religious, but not um, not restricted to it that kind of groping uh, for a sense of kind of radical otherness, complete renewal and, and something that was literally unspeakable and unthinkable, um, uh, a pleroma was completely there on the surface being articulated repeatedly. It reminds me of uh, Kristen Ross's book on the Paris Commune, yeah. uh, Communal Luxury, where she talks about the, the, the astonishing... Uh, explosion of creativity in the defense of the commune itself that it Absolutely, legitimated yeah. these ideas um that it that it made them possible for the first time i think for me this is one of the reasons that the the various um the, the, the particular kind of articulations of of religion of, of orthodoxy in particular but certainly not only and it, and of uh, dissenting sects and so on are, are both incredibly moving and also incredibly fascinating in terms of kind of symptomatic reading. So you have, um, talk about surprises, you have, you know, these uh, sort of asides from journalists talking about how monks and nuns in the in the collective, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the monasteries and so on are like overthrowing their own abbots yeah, and, yeah. you know, reading the Bible as an apocalyptic, uh, you know, renewal text and, and so on. Um, and some of the kind of dissenting, religious traditions 
not only, unfortunately, of the left. So you also get this kind of um, uh, the Yoannity, this kind of uh, essentially kind of proto, well, more or less explicitly fascist ecstatics mm. um, for whom the pogrom becomes an almost kind of holy act and so on. So that kind of apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic discourse is everywhere. It saturates that year. And I think you're right. That's why Lunacharsky is such an interesting figure, because in some ways he represents a, a particularly pregnant point of connection between the kind of, if you like, mainstream Bolshevik mm. and Marxist tradition and that sort of uh, kind of yearning, poeticized tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the left and the Russian Revolution, the contemporary left as well as the historical left. And I, I suppose to, to boldly state, I, the, the importance of the Russian Revolution for the left is that revolution is possible. Yeah. Um, here is how some people did it. Um, sometimes reduced to a series of historical laws about how, how it yeah, must happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and possibly here is where things went badly. Yeah. Um, and yet, I think your emphasis in, in the book, and maybe people won't notice it if they're not kind of familiar with the way in which this subject is treated throughout uh, left history and the history of its reception, is, is quite a way away from it in, in some ways. And, and I mean this in a couple of ways. One is that your attention to protagonists of the revolution who are not, for example, workers. Right. So it's not uh, it's not a story about the workers of the Putinov factory, for instance. They're there, but they're not the only protagonists of the revolution. Um, and this gets away from the kind of schematic approach of some sort of rather doctrinaire Marxism that says, you know, workers reach a certain state and then revolution happens. Um, so that's one thing. The second is you draw from, I assume, Lars T. Lee and various mm. works on on Lenin in drawing a portrait of, of him that doesn't make him a kind of supernatural political figure, but, but certainly a cunning political operator, sensitive to kind of tides and, and, and shifts in political mood, but really capable of error, yeah. uh, sometimes kind of overweening in force. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this has perhaps implications about how we might treat his work. Well, I mean, on the first question, I the book, like all books, is, is trying to do more than one job and there are contradictions. Um, and so, uh, as I was saying, I, I, you know, I, I have my own politics and I don't want to, to blur those. And those politics are very sympathetic to the, to the Bolsheviks and that tradition and, and, and the, the scale of what was done and was attempted and so on. Um, but the, the sort of the, the, the first purpose of the book was as I said, to present a kind of narrative story, um, including to those who aren't necessarily interested in, you know, uh, the politics in a particularly blooded way, mm -hmm. um, not to foreground analysis in a way that's going to be off-putting to the non-specialist and so on. Um, and that meant that, for example, some of the kind of details that maybe um, sort of epiphenomenal to the, f for the real historian, if you like, for the professional historian, I could sort of detain myself on simply because they're, they're wonderful anecdotes, mm. they're mm. amazing stories. Um, and, uh, and, and also that does mean, as you say, as you su suggest, bringing f sort of forth various of the, of the kind of particularly colourful and, 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 and remarkable individuals. The, the constant attempt is to kind of oscillate between doing it justice as a narrative and as a narrative history and also not being misleading about the idea that uh, you know that that this was what created the revolution that it was you know this particularly remarkable figure is the reason for it similarly talking about 
the regions beyond Petrograd, like constantly trying to bring those in, so that there's a there's a sense that this is a you know an, uh, an empire wide phenomenon, you know, in Azerbaijan and in Latvia and so on, uh, and then sort of circling back to inevitably what becomes the center of gravity, which is St. Petersburg, Petrograd. Um, my suspicion is that, again, I, I suspect like a lot of books, uh, that ultimately you can't quite square those circles. So the best, what you do is you do the best you can do. It's a question of kind of failing as well as you can. So that attempt to to get away from that kind of rather arid sense of iron laws, to unabashedly indulge the anecdotal as far as one can, mm. simply because it's so beautiful and fascinating, to tell a, a, as rigorous a story as you can, um, and to and and simply to keep people turning pages. It's it's a it's a juggling mm. act. In terms of what you're saying about Lenin, I mean, there there has been particularly under the work of people like Lars Lee this this kind of um, renovation of a lot of our approaches to Lenin and so on. And I I remain, you know profoundly admiring of, of 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 this man and i think you know one has to kind of walk you know that doesn't mean as i say hagiography it doesn't mean certainly doesn't mean never saying he was wrong um it also means putting a lot of his positions into a kind of historical context which is something that lee has done very well um and you know not not being uh, embarrassed or worried or concerned about saying, you know, he was wrong there. You know, he really didn't help his own case there. Um, you know, that he was ducking the issue mm. a bit there, which which does happen because he was a human being. It's no particular surprise. Um, so, in terms of the, the the one thing I think that I I I do keep coming back to with him is what Lunacharsky calls his ability uh, to raise opportunism to the level of genius, and he doesn't mean it as a criticism. Yeah, he yeah. means, you know, he has an almost uncanny antenna for the moment, for the weak link. And I say almost because sometimes it goes <laughs> wrong. Sometimes he's wrong. But nonetheless, compared to the other figures, compared to, you know, wonderful figures, uh, Spiridonova, Martov, you know, various others, he, he, he does have this, this, this remarkable radar for when to push, where, how far, and so and on. And he's unconstrained by dogma, which I, I think yeah, is interesting yeah. for, in terms of kind of the reception of Lenin, because, you know, one of the things that's really noticeable is the way in which uh, a lot of these forces are restrained by their kind of stagism yeah. or by their economism. And, yeah. you know, they, they, they're like, you know, they, they, and it gets in the way of like acting politically. And, you know, now I'm not a kind of, you know, anti-ideological sure. actionist, um, but it is really, really striking about how, how these opportunities are missed. And it, you know, it, it, it seems to me a, a unfortunate fact that the reception of Lenin has kind of boiled down, no. particularly in, in, in the West into these kind of really, really arid, uh, cliches about how revolution happens about, you know, what you have to do. To right, make a revolution. right, right. Well, I mean, as you say, the one of the things that is is repeatedly remarked on again at the time is the the extent to which and the ways in which he breaks from a Marxist orthodoxy mm. that he himself was uh, expressing, you know, really quite a short time beforehand, um, and shocks his own comrades to the core in some cases with with his own sort of um, you know uh, breakings from 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 that sort of position. So it was never an anti intellectual thing. He's always you know, attempting to kind of work out his own sort of theoretical and tactical position. But it it is, it, it does change. And it responds very, very minutely to moments and is not scared to kind of go against, uh, you know, certain sort of traditional nostrums of, of his own movement. You talk about, I can't remember the formulation you use. But again, it's worth pointing out that he is, you know, famously 
incredibly splenetic and like rude, at, you know, and so on about his opponents. And it's worth, you know, you, you can you can say that that's not a problem. You can say it's a problem. Certainly, it's worth pointing out that many of his own comrades, A, thought it could be a problem at times, and B, would sort of say to him, can I dial that down mm. a little mm. bit? You don't, you know. So I think that this is another of the paradoxes of, um, I don't want to parody, but a lot of modern day self-styled Leninism is not only that it has a, a kind of frozen and hypostatic notion of his own positions mm. as as dogma for today, which is absurd, but even down to a sense of kind of style and language, it somehow it yes, sometimes mimics yeah. him in this unconscious but extraordinarily kitsch way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's true that you 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 find, you know, I, I find it a pick up a pamphlet or yeah. a, a leaflet. I'm like, wow, these are these are like like fragments like shored against your own ruin. They're they're, they're like pulled out of these kind of hundred year old texts and like like the the the, the translations of you know absolutely uh, of, of maybe hundred maybe seventy years ago. So there's something so, about the, the 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 very particular oddly stilted register of particularly the kind of uh, some of some aspects again i don't want to parody of the british left that one has this epiphany at a certain point one's like oh you're you're riffing off mm. 100 year old mm. translation um it can have its own poetry yeah. but it's a little absurd at times <laughs> um question about contingency i think and one of the things that's very very clear is there's no historic inevitability about the course of the revolution although i think actually one of the things that comes out very early in the book is is that 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 kind of Brechtian line because things are as they are they won't remain as they are yeah um but it, it you know the course of the revolution depends on enormous number of contingencies coincidences mm. and not only large-scale ones like the war um but also particular personalities and that, that's true of Lenin but it's also true of Kerensky it's true of um yeah. Kornilov the kind yeah, of yeah. uh right-wing wannabe dictator uh Kumanga. uh and for me the contingencies get get very difficult or very kind of upsetting historically when you think about Germany mm -hmm. you think about mm -hmm. the, the failure of the Spartacist uh, and then yeah. the 1923 uh, 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 revolutions in a sense in a sense you know and, and in, in fact you know for Lenin as well these are the things that would have sustained um, yeah. a, a Russian revolution <laughs> and it, you know in, in terms of the course of history though it becomes very upsetting uh, but there are moments too where it seems even within this revolution that things might have taken a different course and look I mean counterfactuals are very often the preserve of the right, mm -hmm. okay? You know, uh, but there are moments that I think you suggest that had dispositions been a little bit different, the course of post-revolutionary history might have been changed as well. And I think that that's, that's true, particularly in October itself, um, when the failure to bring together a kind of socialist... Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, beyond Bolshevik... Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah ...government yeah. Is, is, is a real... Yeah. ...error... Well, I think so. I mean, I uh, f f the thing about counterfactuals is um, we all do it all the time, and and I, I, in a way, I don't think you can think rigorously about history yeah. without thinking about counterfactuals as as carefully as you can. You're quite right that it's not only a question of a kind of explosion of potentiality. There is also this sort of the the, the, sh the sheer aleatory, the sheer you know the contingent that that, that gets thrown up. The one thing that that does feel inevitable, I think, early on, like in January, is that this cannot stand. Like it might it might not be October nineteen seventeen that's mm. going to happen, but something is absolutely going to happen because this system can't can't survive. And people are completely explicit about that. Then at the other end, uh, you know, towards the end of the book and and in the epilogue, I I think that 
the kind of primary sort of con- conditioning um, factors for what ultimately the catastrophe that followed were, uh, I, I do think, sort of external and to do with, you know, sort of the, the large scale political and economic structures and so on, like the failure of the European Revolution and so on. But I do also think that from from that kind of uh, ground, if you like, there are certain subjective um, dispositions, an interesting way of putting it, factors that uh, not only among the Bolsheviks, among their allies and their sort of conflictual allies, that one feels probably couldn't have solved the situation, but certainly might have obviated some of mm. the catastrophe. Very, very early on, you know, on the night of the revolution itself, the, the walkout of the left, of, of Martov's left Mensheviks, this isn't, I mean, to be clear, this isn't just the kind of, you know, history, but, you know, 2020 of, 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 of history. You know, Sukhanov himself, very, very close to Martov, writing quite quickly afterwards and for the rest of his life, it was a catastrophe, it was a crime, we never should have left. Mm-hmm. Because there was, earlier that evening, scant hours earlier, a re, you know, uh, not just an appetite for, a motion passed for a collective non-Bolshevik-specific yeah, government yeah. and so on. Um, and of course, one can argue about the difference it would have made, but... But one can argue about the difference <laughs> yeah. it would have made, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are other things as well that occur to me, like, you know, the, the bizarre hesitancy of Trotsky to take a position, a political position, who wants to, you know, maybe be press officer for the revolution, but, but doesn't want to doesn't want to take a, a ministerial position. Now, it's, it's yeah. partly because he's aware that he's a Jew and he's, yeah. he's worried about how that, that will play out. And, and you think it really could have changed the course of the kind of post-Lenin... Anyway, I mean, this That's is... That's a, a very a interesting... That his... his, his um, concern about, you know, giving succor to anti-Semites by being, you know, prominent in the government is well known mm. and, and, and a cause for argument. Um, uh, but that, but your kind of further point about the difference that might have made is a very, mm. very good one and not one that gets talked about as much, actually. Yeah. So for me, oh, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. Go, go, go. No, no. Well, I mean, for me, you know, maybe we'll get onto this later, but for me, one of the things that, that, that really does raise a kind of intense sorrow about it is, uh, what I continually, in, in terms of the the dispositional factor, is uh, an, a kind of psychologically understandable, but I think very baleful, uh, collapsing into making virtues of necessities later on. And this recurs again and again. And I think, again, I don't think it was causal, but I think it was at the very, very least deeply unhelpful. And in some cases, fed into a, a particularly reactionary dynamic. Yeah, I mean, so there aren't, I think, historically inevitable processes here in the way that we sometimes talked about mm. through the course of the 20th century. But if there aren't strict laws governing revolution, if there aren't laws that are like laws of nature, mm. what solace do we take from 1917? Well, I mean, for me, I think on one level it is, as you say, the the simple fact that, you know, revolutions can happen. But I would go a bit further and say, you know, revolutions against capital, against capitalism, against imperialism can happen and are sustained and driven forward by, you know, a glimmer, but a but a visible glimmer of a kind of a sense of absolutely mm. radical renewal, not, not yeah. just a kind of tinkering, yeah. but, you know, a fundamentally different system. So there's that. But allied to that for me is... Uh, a move away from precisely the inevitability you're talking about to say not only was it this kind of you know beautiful utopian vision because that can be expressed in a very 
counter-revolutionary mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Ah, such a tragedy yes, that revolutions yes, yes, always yes, fail, yes. you know. Um, but but precisely, I think this is where a concrete analysis does come in because because all of that that sense of the kind of epochal glimmer and, and how moving that is is as nothing if you sort of think it was doomed. Mm -hmm. So allied to that for me is a sense that embattled, you know, uh, denigrated, attacked, yes, but doomed, no. Yeah. And, and I think you have to yeah. be able to make that case to actually draw a concrete inspiration from it. I mean, I think it's interesting the way that this gets inflect, you know, you know, inflected on the contemporary left, which is that, you know, if, if you, you know, you know, we have to reconcile ourselves to a very minimal account of social possibility, a kind of very minor reformism now against the horror, precisely because revolutions always devour their children, this kind of uh, cliche, which is, which is which is an old cliche. It goes back to Edmund uh, Yeah, Burke. absolutely. To, um, to, yeah, pr yeah. Pr yeah, exactly. Before the, and the thing I've said repeatedly at events for this book, and, and it, I, I'm completely sincere about it, like I welcome a serious argument about this, including with like right-wing historians who are actually prepared to make the yeah. case that it was doomed or that it was, you know, you know, uh, you know, whatever. That's fine. I'd much rather actually have that because then you can actually have a serious systematic debate. But this nostrum that is thrown around that like, you know, it, you know, uh, are the tragedy, you know, mm. a people's tragedy, if mm. you will, you know, um, are, you know, are the inevitable. That's, that's not an argument, you mm. know, I mean, that that's, it, it's, it's the evasion of an argument. So there's a question about history and the inevitable, which is Stalin. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's the meat of this 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 argument. And throughout the book, I think anyone familiar with the history can you know, <laughs> encounter these numberless and extraordinary personalities and know that they have like a very particular terminus <laughs> inscribed for them, yeah, right? But yeah. Sukarnov, Kamenev, Bukhar, and yeah. Trotsky, of course. Uh, and and you use Sukarnov's phrase about starting the kind of grey blur. Mm. But that great blur comes to define for many the meaning of the revolution itself. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and the cliche of every reactionary is exactly that, you know, that, that because of October gulag, because of October show trials, because of October, as if the, the kind of telos of the revolution itself were, were in fact historically inevitable in yeah. its unfolding, right? But accounting for the historical arc does matter. Mm. And, you know, you, you quote Victor Serge at the end, and it's, I think it's worth exploring Serge a bit because he's the most acute... I think unblinking chronicler of this problem, but you know, how do you deal with it? And and you know, I think the other danger that, that aligns itself to these reactionary accounts is uh, the, this idea. And again, it's, it's something that uh, uh, comes from Burke. Actually, is this idea that that an armed doctrine. Uh, revolution made in the name of an ab abstraction is always poisonous. It's always destructive. Mm -hmm. It's always going to destroy its participants. What is the, you know, how do we deal with that? How, you know, what is the best way of, of facing both Stalinism, but also this kind of, you know, almost kind of foundational attack on the notion uh, that, that revolution at all uh, is conceivable? Yeah. Well, I mean, to bring it to the book for one second, I mean, I, I had, if you like, the, the luxury the, the sad luxury that that is not the focus of the book. So the epilogue um, kind of gestures towards these questions and, and draws in some of the key issues that I think are important to, to, to beginning to, to deal with this seriously. Um, and, and there's this odd, again, trying to do two different jobs, because if you are new to this story, then, you know, the kind of roll call at the end of who dies when and so on is, is, is pretty wrenching. And if you're not, as you say, there is this sense of this kind of knowing the terminus. Um, after having kind of brought in the, the factors that I do think are important, um, I, I think 
really the best thing I can think in terms of actually kind of accounting for it is is trying to be as unflinching and as rigorous as possible and as concrete as possible. So not merely saying, you know, not 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 saying either, well, revolutions always eat their children or, well, you know, um, Stalin was a very forceful personality and therefore da-da-da, but actually saying, well, you know, these were the uh, social and economic conditions in uh, 1921 and that means that you can make sense of the following decisions including decisions that now look really bad mm-hmm. among people that otherwise you would agree with and so on so inevitability is is absolutely not indicated but a kind of a kind of rational derivation of how we got from from here to there and as you say the one of the great tragedies of stalin is the extent to which he feels really contingent in a in a in a good way for our purposes mm-hmm. you know early on and sukhanov describing him as a gray blur and he certainly features but he's by no means you know one of the kind of uh leading figures and certainly not one of the leading intellectual figures um i anecdotally um there is. I need to kind of state an erratum for this book. There is a mistake in this book, which is in the the dramatis personae at the end. The list, uh, the one. So there's a little potted history of all the mm-hmm. major participants, and the one person that I forgot to mention uh, in that section was Stalin. And not only did I forget to, but <laughs> I, everyone else yeah, at Verso forgot to. Right. Which I I'm I owe the reviewer at the Morning Star for pointing <laughs> this out. Uh, promise, promise. And, um, you know, and I hold, hold my hands out. It was a mistake. And it's obviously, it's the most, I think it's the kind of, the most symptomatic omission, you know, the kind of unstated yearning in mm-hmm. that omission was, was, I couldn't help but smile about that. Um, as regards the surge thing, I mean, I, 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 I find that surge quote that you're talking about, where he talks about the multiple possible outcomes of Bolshevism, very powerful because, as I say in the book, generally it is deployed by anti-Stalinist socialists to say it didn't inevitably lead to Stalin. And I think that's 100% true, so let me be very clear about that. However, also in his quote which doesn't get talked about as much, is it certainly didn't inevitably, but there were aspects of the practice Mm. that may well have cleaved in that direction, given other things. And so he is both not exonerating, but he's both sort of defending, but also criticizing. And I think that's incredibly powerful, which he then does, you know, he did around Kronstadt and so on, you know, and, and, and I think there's no problem with disagreeing with him or any of the other internal critics, um, at particular points, that's a legitimate, if you like, debate among, you know, that's a comradely debate. But the willingness to actually have that kind of unflinching, solidarity-based but critical approach mm-hmm. to what happened is is the only way we can possibly go forward and not just constantly operating as counsel for the defence yeah. in a kind of knee-jerk way. It's understanding why we would do this. There have been a century of bad faith reactionary attacks and defending you know, defending the, the revolution, I think, is, is is both understandable and incredibly important. But the best way to do that is not by by the jerking of the knee. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm. I, there's a line from Serge, actually, I think, which is really interesting in terms of of, of how it, how it now feels. Um, and he's in. It's in 1913 when he's in prison in 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 France. And he's defending French anarchists, um, and he 
and he he talks about the doctrine of French anarchism uh, in in this way. He's talk, so he's talking about the anarchists. Um, what had preserved me from their linear thinking, their cold anger, their pitiless vision of society was ever since my childhood my contact with the world imbued with tenacious hope and rich in human values, that of the Russians. And it's it's striking to me how much this could describe, um, you know, you know, not only Stalinism but the kind of epigonies of Stalinism in the West afterwards. This kind of pitiless vision, this mm. uh, incapacity for for. And he gets in mm. trouble in the Soviet Union for yeah. befriending Mensheviks, yeah. for befriending. You know, reactionaries even uh, you know, honest yeah. but reactionary people. Yeah, yeah. And th yeah. this this sense of that you know that I think it's this, this double duty that you know for both defence and criticism for him it also becomes I think you know that question of how you deal with differing convictions as well yeah. right so that that possibility of democratic plurality right yeah. because he enters um, uh, uh, he enters the Soviet Union his description of this kind of moment of deep joy mm, crossing mm, this bridge mm. and he picks up a paper to have to, to read Zinoviev um, denouncing the demand for democratic freedoms and you think and then it's like there's yeah. already something there that, that's yeah and so I mean Victor Serge I love deeply but absolutely but he was part of a current I yeah. think that's yeah. you know and and there are, you know, there, there are times when, you know, I think you can make a very kind of strong case for, if you like, a certain sort of, you know, mainstream Bolshevik position as a tragic necessity. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, some some of the issues of censorship around the civil war. This was a this is a legitimate debate. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't all just kind of rah rah, yeah. uh, you know, proto Stalinists who were for it, but. But let's you know let's actually have that debate as they did at the time you know mm -hmm. un until things became um, impossible. So so Serge is if, if probably the most prominent of of the people who had that kind of critical but uh, sort of um, uh, sympathetic but critical vision. You yeah. know um, yeah. solidarity based, but we need an adjective for solidarity: mm. <laughs> solidaritous but critical vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there were there were others um, and um, and. And they were, you know, even even their opponents at, and, and in in their sort of uh, in their better moments would sort of acknowledge that that was, you know, they were crucial to kind of keeping mm -hmm. that kind of culture of, of of radical discussion and so on alive. I think. So, twenty minutes left. Mm. There's a tonal shift through the book where this kind of latent apocalyptic begins to flash forth. So, from the astonishing movements at the beginning of the year, things become more desperate with the war. They become more desperate at the front. They become more brutal in the street. Hunger takes hold. And something I'm interested in, something that's been sort of uh, floating around our conversation is that kind of secularized religious mm -hmm. sense about, about revolution, which occurs in revolutionary moments. It's not just a matter of tone, I think, but something which attends any talk about the achievement of a kind of new dispensation. Yeah, yeah. Lots of silly cliches about communism as a religious yeah, movement. Yeah, yeah. You know, as if anti-communism, like the secular religion of the United States. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think this disposition is interesting, and, and it's interesting in a letter from a soldier from the front, um, which you quote, um, and I'm just going to read because yeah. I think it's I think it's incredible. Uh, and this this soldier uh, Kuchlovok, I don't, I'm probably pronouncing it Kuchlovok, I don't know. And he sends it. He he writes to Izvestia, which is the the left wing paper, Bolshevik paper. Uh, he writes, Now another saviour of the world must be born to save the people from all the calamities in the making here on earth and to put an end to these bloody days so that no beast of any kind living on the earth created not by princes and rulers but by God-given nature is wiped out. For God is an invisible being inhabiting whoever possesses a conscience and tells us to live in friendship. But no, there are evil people who sow strife among us and poison us one against another, pushing us to murder who wish for others what they would not wish for themselves. They used to say that the war was foisted off on us by Nicholas. Nicholas has been overthrown, 
So who's foisting the war on us now? And I, I, it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary letter. And, you know, it, that sense of having achieved something, but, but it not yet arriving. Deflected apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you feel it very much from the, the, I think that letter is from late July and, and that after, particularly after the failure of the, of, of the offensive, the, the Russian offensive at, at the front, um, that sense of deflected and stalled um, millennial change mm. becomes more and more pronounced. Uh, I mean, yes, I think that letter, that letter in its original form goes on for three or four pages and is by some way my favorite um document of the revolution it's almost unbearably moving um and i think for me that uh kind of messianic millennial sense within the revolutionary tradition um including marxism is something that i find not just very interesting not just very kind of um affectively powerful but something uh, worth defending. And I know that there are radicals and Marxists and socialists and so on who are somewhat embarrassed of that aspect. Mm. Um, and I'm, I think I'm much closer to Lunacharsky here. You know, I mean, I certainly don't think it's the only aspect. I mean, I think, you know, it has to be kind of allied to what Lunacharsky called the cold stream of Marxism. But mm. I, I think uh, that is that sense, that kind of ecstatic sense of the sublime and 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 the apocalyptic is completely constitutive to what it is to be human and that means human as including as a as a political actor and a political mm -hmm. agent uh let alone as part of a program for fundamental social renewal so i if you like unembarrassedly as part of a kind of total um a, a, a kind of general approach to, to radicalism see that as part of my tradition um uh, and and so it's no surprise that it recurs throughout the book and frankly it would be doing violence to the story if it didn't because it was the way this was expressed repeatedly um on the ground there's something about the moment of the october revolution itself that has almost the quality of a miracle right these mm. uh, these guards that change these boundaries that are transgressed it's it's just it, you know these quite minimal changes uh, almost pathetically, and yet also there's a sublimity to it, which I think is astonishing. Well, this gets to a question about language that I, I try to, uh, I've been becoming even more interested since I finished the book, but is in the book, which is the, the question of the, the limits of language and the limits of language um, in, uh, in, in radical politics. Um, and th there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of metaphor that recurs throughout 1917, which is of of words failing. Mm. Um, and, you know, you see it in some of the poets talking about the time, talking about language initially being being scrubbed clean by the sandpaper yes, of the revolution, yes. but then later on in the year, words breaking down into the howl of beasts. Mm. Um, and, you you know, I use the a metaphor from a Chernyshevsky book where he writes the key, pa the key passage of his book, it's just two rows of dots mm. because the language is inexpressible. Um, but as you say, the, this inexpressibility is the culmination of everyday words, yeah. and that that um, that dialectic, if mm. you like, that 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 what I'm increasingly thinking thinking of as a kind of apophatic yes, revolutionism, yes, yes. is also something that I would want to defend and investigate mm. rather than be embarrassed of. Mm. I could dwell on this forever, so but mm. I'm not going to because I want to talk about trains. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other great the, metaphor. The other great metaphor, yeah. right? And you highlight the theme in the epilogue, but let's kind of shadow it forth a bit. This network of iron roads veined through this vast yeah. empire, you know, connecting capital to province, yeah. 
um, but Russia to Finland to Germany. Mm. You know, Lenin's sealed train, mm. Lenin the coal stoker in disguise crossing the country. It's also, to my mind, it mirrors the network of correspondence and idea which binds together the international you know, papers and publications. Uh, uh, across vast distances, the kind of distances that, that no longer exist mm, for us. Mm. And trains, in some way, seem to be the necessary technology of the revolution. Uh, would it have been thinkable without them? Uh, trains and wires. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also the, the Hughes yeah. machine, yes, these kind yes, of early yes. telegraph machines. Um, I, no, I suspect not, uh, is, the, is the short answer to that. But I also have to kind of unembarrassedly sort of hold up my hands and say that for me, they were... Uh, trains are important at least as much as anything else as a as a metaphor um, mm. and I hope that I can make the case that for me at least and hopefully for some readers that's not if you like merely a filigree and I have no problem with filigrees but it's not merely it, it's also a heuristic it's yes, a way yes. of making sense of things one of the things that I like one of the few things I like about getting older is be becoming clearer about my own fascinations over the years and something has become clear about my own interest in trains, which is um, draws on this Bruno Schultz quote I use at the end, which is, we have grown up in a sort of in a culture in which the default metaphoric resonance of the train is of ineluctability and a single road, a single rail. Um, but there is a kind of occult counter tradition within, you know, fiction like Schultz, like um, Stefan Grabinski and various others, which is to point out that just as constitutive of, of, the, of the main line is the siding. Mm. And there's something quite interesting ideologically that that is just abnegated in, 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 in the mass of culture, which when I discovered that there's this a line in, in John Reed and Bessie Beattie's description of, of the revolution where they, they mention in passing and say that they can't understand it, that the counter-revolutionaries describe the revolutionaries as switchmen. Mm. And... You know, I, I later discovered that the 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 the, the switch huts of the of the railways were where the revolutionaries used to meet, and this idea of the revolutionaries as people who are prepared to switch the kind of train of history onto a siding, onto a less frequented track, was incredibly powerful to me. So I think partly, um, you know, there's something very kind of liberating symbolically for me about the idea of rescuing trains from the idea of, of of ineluctability and thinking of them instead relating to them instead as a as as about uh, a, a plurality of potentiality mm. i found very moving i mean marx obviously talks about revolutions yeah. as the locomotive of history but it, this 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 part of the epilogue reminded me of the, the scolion that benjamin writes to the thesis on the philosophy of history, where he talks about revolutions as the emergency break. Right, uh, right, a, right. Really, which is when I look at the contemporary world, is how I uh, increasingly feel like uh, feel like then you know that 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 also is an aspect of it, which is uh, which is which is particularly interesting, and maybe is kind of actually kind of you know not it's it's the the, the unspoken part. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of, of, of this tradition, it also reminds me of. Um, you know, the the because uh, uh, the Andrei Platonov, the mm -hmm. great, great, great uh, Soviet novelist, um, who's the novel, the, the novella, really, the foundation mm, piece, yeah. just an extraordinary piece of melancholy and and yeah. seriousness about what it is to build socialism. But he says he says locomotives and revolution are inseparable for him. 
It, uh, and although not in as explicitly a, a kind of um, a kind of politically inflected vein, you see this repeatedly within kind of um, Russian radical art. Like Khlebnikov, my mm. own, one of my own favourite figures of the kind of avant-garde, yeah. talks has a kind of constant return to a rumination of trains as a way of relating to history, and he talks about uh, putting movable monuments on the platforms of trains, so you can kind <laughs> of have monuments that move around, um, but. The, the resonance of these images works as you as you imply precisely because they are also concretely real that this, mm. this is mm. a territory of you know uh, defined by this kind of crisscrossing of rails and you can watch the spread of of radical ideas of revolution along the train lines and the yes, train lines yes. and the wire lines mm. so you get you know early on in march you get sort of a diary uh, entry saying, oh, you know, there's some word that something's happening in Petrograd, but nothing really is happening here. And then a, a week later, after some trains have arrived, you know, like everything has changed and nothing will be the same again from the same, yeah, to the yeah, same yeah, guy, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm aware, again, in terms of the hot and cold streams, that there are some interested in these traditions who get quite, whose skin starts to itch when mm, one talks about mm. metaphors and so on. And I would just unabashedly say this is, you know, this, they, they work because they are both concrete and more than. I want to take the last few minutes to talk mm. about the contemporary. Mm. Now, there's a lot here that speaks to the contemporary moment, I think. Um, certainly for me, I've been thinking about, you know, that since Gramsci, the question for us in the West has been posed less in terms of kind of assault on the Winter Palace and trying to find what kind of thing the modern Winter mm. Palace might be. Mm, mm, mm. You know, insurrection of the Leninist sort now looks quite improbable in Europe if only because the army is much better <laughs> better armed than it, it was then. So the, part of my question is about how we deal with the real conditions here, and I'm interested in your own work on kind of social sadism here. But I'm also interested in the question of pessimism. Mm. Perry Anderson once remarked that the kind of secret imprint of Western Marxism is failure, right? It's a body of theory precipitated by both failure and historical catastrophe. It's the secret both of its strengths and its weaknesses. You know, it's caustic critiques, but the kind of self-lacerating yeah, resignation yeah. as well. Now, you're part of a project, at least partly in that lineage. There's other political lineages as well. And the themes of that work is about facing historical catastrophe yeah. uh, and a return to a kind of historical pessimism as a method. And if I understand the position, it's you know uh, drawing the poison of bad hope yeah. out. Uh, so is the present moment one in which pessimism is necessary? I, I think so. I think, I mean, and I should say that my own relationship to this was a question of kind of theory uh, making sense of, 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 of an effective um, reality, which is that, you know, having come out of uh, a tradition for me, that for many years was extremely moralistic about lack of lack of hope or lack of, um, not just lack of hope, but lack of sort of rah-rah optimism mm. and that sort of excoriated that as being... Um, in some way, you know, objectively counter-revolutionary and liable to, you know, lead to, you know, the cardinal sin demoralization. Um, and what I discovered when I essentially was kind of freed with my fellow salvage editors to to kind of explore the scale of what seems to me the the the, the, the problems affecting us to be to to not to not be moralized against for feeling pessimistic. Far from being demoralized, I feel more politically motivated than I have mm. for many, many years, well over a decade. So simply as an equation, pessimism equals inactivity, I think this is fallacious nonsense mm -hmm. and based on moralism and so on. So, so that was one of the driving things. Um, and I think obviously on one level, there is a kind of utopian hope to any radical project there has to be because yeah. if you genuinely think there's no point doing anything if that is then 
then there's no point doing anything. But I think that prioritizing that over a kind of um, hard-headed pessimism, if the times demand it, and that's mm. that's the corollary there. Like pessimism is not or should not be a, a point of principle. Yeah. It's a question of it, it's a question of a result of an analysis of a concrete situation. So it's not that you know it's not that you know I, I like to wake up in the morning and say right now to be pessimistic about whatever comes my past. It's, it uh, comes past my door. It's about saying looking at the world at the moment. Uh, you know, I, I love being surprised by joy, to quote Lewis. You know, I love that. You know, I, I was delighted by Corbyn and I'm yeah. very excited by that and so on. So this is not about a kind of Eeyore-ish wallowing in gloom. What it's about saying is trying to be trying to be concrete about the everyday. And this comes into what you're talking about, the stuff I've been trying to do about social sadism. I don't think history is, you know, I don't think we just kind of keep on going through a thing called capitalism. I think it gets better and it gets worse and it gets worse. And I think that we are in, you know, a historically particularly curdled and poisonous moment and have been sort of certainly, since, you know, been moving that way since the 70s. Um, and I think that there is a new iteration of a kind of overt sadism of, of, of kind of ruling class power. Mm -hmm that I don't think was there in the 50s, not in the same way I don't think was there in the 60s, even in the early 70s. And I think that, you know, I think we would be kidding ourselves if we did not face up to that and to what that does to general consciousness and so on. So there is one sense, this is where it kind of allies to the activism. For me, part of the point about pessimism, uh, being pessimistic, I should say, is the yearning to prove that pessimism wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and that's constitutive yeah. to it. Um, so... Uh, yeah, does that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. I mean, do, do you find the social sadism? Does it does it touch the practice of the left? Because I mean, I think it does actually. I mean, there's a uh, yes, a quite brutal aspect to a lot of kind of contemporary left politics, which is almost, you know, apocalyptic in the bad sense. I think it does. I mean, I, I again, I've tried to talk about this in a couple of essays in Salvage. I mean, I do think it's worth making a distinction between, you know, not sort of talking in sort of sweeping terms as if this is all equally yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's at all. And I think that, you know, the kind of new iterations of cruelty in the criminal justice system in, in the US are not the same thing as people being mean on Twitter, let's be very clear. <laughs> but yeah. I do think that, um, you know, we are interpolated by neoliberalism, mm -hmm. we're neoliberal subjects, among other things, and a degree of that kind of the schwarmerei and the, um, the jouissance in in, in a certain kind of, um, in, in shaming, for example, mm. I think is a kind of mediated iteration of this. Um, it's not only that, but I do think it's in part that. Okay. I mean, I mean, one of the things I think, because I have a tendency to pessimism anyway, mm. um, it's one of the reasons that I was never able to be part of the same political tradition you come out of. Um, but but it seems but it's one of the things that allows me to to look at the Corbyn project with a kind of rational basis, which right? is, which, in which, which you don't is have to vital. invest with a, right. you don't have to invest with the kind of be all and end all because whatever yeah. happens on June the eighth, yeah, yeah. June the ninth is still going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I think that's essential. Um, two minutes left. Well, I mean, in terms of the pessimism and bad hope. October is crucial to this yeah, because for me, yeah. 1924, the triumph of the idea of socialism mm. in one country mm. 
is the triumph of bad, bad hope. hope. That yeah. is a point at which pessimism would have been a lesser evil to say the international revolutions haven't worked. Mm. This is a catastrophe, but we have to face it head on. So, you know, I hope in not too tendentious a way, there is clearly a relationship between my commitment to a kind of unflinching optic and this mm. historical work that I've been doing. I think it politically matters. <laughs> You're right of immense imagination. We have one minute left. Um, I think sometimes we need that kind of imagination. The French Revolution, the piece of Samizdat most circulated was a utopian fiction. Mm. What would winning look like? It is, as I try to say in the book, I'm going to dignify ducking the question by saying that it is out of fidelity to the scale of the reconfiguration that it is constitutive of me as someone who hasn't yet got there that I can't answer that. Because in doing so, I would change myself to be capable of living in it. As the hope goes, so would we all. Great. Chani Mayville, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This has been Navarra FM. We will see you same time, same place next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.